Let's turn to the Word of God. And I'm going to read from the Apostle Paul's letter to the Romans, chapter 8, beginning to read from verse 18. Romans 8, verse 18. I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. The creation waits in eager expectation for the sons of God to be revealed. For the creation was subject to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the glorious freedom of the children of God. We know that the whole creation has been groaning in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, grow inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we are saved. But hope that is seen is no hope at all. But if we hope for what we have not yet have, we wait for it patiently. This is the word of God. We come tonight to our, our fourth lecture. We've looked already, you will remember, of Christ in the Old Testament, of the two natures of Christ, fully man and fully God, and last week, the somber reality of the judgment seat of Christ. And tonight, we're thinking of eternity with Christ. And it's a great joy to have with us tonight Dr. Errol Davis, the Reverend Dr. Errol Davis, formerly principal of the Evangelical Theological College of Wales, Brintirian. Not retired. We don't believe in retirement. I've said this time and time again. Christians never retire. We simply move on to a different sphere of service in preparation for eternity with Christ. I don't think Dr. Davis has been to Newcastle before. I think he's been as far north as Durham. And you're just a bit further far north from there now. It's a great joy to have you with us, and we do welcome you, and we look forward to what you have to say to us. What does the Bible mean by heaven? What will it be for Christian believers to dwell with Christ in the new creation? We're going to hear something of that tonight from Dr. Davis. So, without any more ado, I want to welcome him. I hope you feel very much at home with us. And we look forward to what we have to say. So I'm handing over to you. He's going to speak for about an hour, and we'll follow our usual pattern of having time for clarification questions later, if that should be necessary. But meanwhile, let's give our attention to Dr. Davis now. Thank you very much for your kind welcome. I count it a privilege to be here uh, and to be able to address you uh, in this meeting on this uh, important subject, and I'm 
very grateful too for the opportunity to be identified with the Christian Institute uh, in its work and in this uh, series of autumn lectures. I'm just one of uh, thousands of Christians in the UK who thank God for the work and the growing influence of the Christian Institute. And uh, my prayer is that the Lord will continue to bless and prosper the work and make it even more significant uh, in the coming years. In turning to the subject, it will help you if you have your Bible, your New Testament particularly, uh, open, and uh, you can check on what I'm saying from the Word. You must accept it, not because of a speaker, uh, but because it is uh, in God's Word. Uh, and uh, I'm, I recall an incident when... Uh, I was due to give 16 addresses on the subject of death, final judgment, hell and heaven in Asia over a period of uh, three days. And being well organized, the conference was in late September, they wanted all the addresses, uh, outlines at least, by mid-July. I failed by a few days to send about 10 of them on and then I just sent an email to say, well, uh, I've only got heaven left now and I, I'll, I'll do it over the weekend and I'll send it on. Uh, but the more I thought about heaven, uh, the more troubled I became uh, in that uh, I realized there was a vast amount of uh, teaching in the scripture um, that perhaps I wasn't as familiar with as I ought to be. And um, at that time, about eight years ago, there was little literature available on the subject of heaven and um, it was about three and a half weeks later before I sent on the the final outlines. Um, So the the Bible has a great deal to say um, about the the future state and we're thinking uh, of eternity with Christ Bishop Ryle, in his commentary on Luke's Gospel, commenting on Luke 23, verse 43, he says that these words deserve to be printed in letters of gold. The bishop was referring to the words of our Lord Jesus Christ from the cross to the dying, repentant thief. I tell you the truth, our Lord said, today you'll be with me in paradise. This is what the bishop adds. That word today contains a body of divinity. It tells us that the very moment a Christian dies, his soul is in happiness and in safekeeping. His full redemption is not yet come. His perfect bliss will not begin before the resurrection morning. But he warns. There is no mysterious delay, no season of suspense, no purgatory between his death and the state of reward. And in words which need to be underlined today, the bishop rightly insists, in the day that the Christian breathes his last, he goes to paradise. In the hour that he departs, he is with Christ. And he quotes Philippians 1.23. That, I believe, is the teaching 
not only of our Lord Jesus Christ and of Bishop Ryle, but it's the teaching of the entire New Testament scripture. For example, in a closely argued but deeply moving section of scripture in Philippians 1, verses 18 to 25, a passage that well uh, deserves to be studied by believers. The apostle challenges on the subject of living and dying, being with Christ, and the anticipation of being with Christ. In verse 18 of uh, Philippians 1, he lays down the principle that irrespective of the unkind, hurtful motives, actions, of other Christians and preachers directed against him. He himself is determined to rejoice that Christ is preached by those very Christians who are seeking to hurt him. Then in verse 20, he underlines the priority which he has in his life and his ministry. He says that now, as always, Christ will be exalted, whether by life or by death. And there's no sharp distinction or break between verses 20 and 21. To me, says the Apostle, and the words are emphatic in the Greek, to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. Life had no purpose for the Apostle Paul apart from Christ. So therefore he says to die is gain. That is, death means for the believer the immediate privilege of being with Christ in glory, seeing him as he is and being like him. In verses 22 to 24, the apostle, in the light of this prospect, expresses his dilemma. I wonder how many of us have felt this dilemma in our own lives. The apostle feels that to continue living in this world would mean a fruitful ministry for the churches, and he fears that that may be necessary for him. However, he adds, he himself has a strong desire, words which can be translated literally, I want very much. I know it's necessary perhaps to stay in order to help and guide and teach the churches, In terms of my my own feelings, my own desires, I want much rather better, there's a triple adverb in the Greek, to be with Christ. It's a very strongly expressed preference. So the apostle is torn. He's pulled between two options. His preference was to be with Christ but he fears it may be necessary to stay in order to minister longer to the churches. And so, for the Apostle Paul, death was not a a state of unconscious sleep or a limbo-type waiting room. Rather, it was the immediate conscious entrance of a believer into the glorious presence of his or her Lord. Elsewhere, for example, in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 6 to 8, Paul underlines this fact again. 
He reminds us how he was surrounded by many dangers in in the, the context, many threats. He was also experiencing physical suffering. The apostle was, however, far from feeling depressed. He wasn't full of self-pity, as we can often be. No, he indicates he was sustained by the indwelling Spirit of God and the glorious hope of the gospel. And the apostle is confident in verse 8 that to be absent from the body means to be present with the Lord. Charles Hodge comments in his commentary on those very words in verse 8 of 2 Corinthians 5. He says, The Christian's heaven is to be with Christ, for we should be like him when we see him as he is. Into his presence the believer passes as soon as he is absent from the body, and into Christ's likeness the soul is at death immediately transformed. And when at the resurrection the body is made like unto his glorious body, the work of redemption is consummated. Awaiting this consummation, says Hodge, it is an inestimable blessing to be assured that believers, as soon as they are absent from the body, are present with the Lord. Hodge is only echoing the message of the New Testament. The believers at death spend eternity with the Lord Jesus Christ. To the dying thief, as we've noted, the Saviour said today, you will be with me. Not just that you will be in paradise, but you will be with me in paradise. And commentators have referred to the surprise that this thief must have felt. He was asking for a blessing in the future at the end of the world. But our Lord tells him on that very day that he dies, he'll be with Christ in paradise. Again, the man asks only to be remembered. And now the Lord Jesus Christ says to him, you will be with me. And the words paradise and heaven in the New Testament are interchangeable if you compare 2 Corinthians 12, verses 2 and 4 with statements in Revelation uh, 22 and chapter 21. So within hours, Jesus assures the dying, believing criminal he will be in heaven with him. A glorious, glorious prospect for the Christian when he or she dies, to be with the Lord, absent from the body, present with the Lord. Remember in his high priestly prayer in John 17, and verse 24, the Lord prays, I will that those you have given me be constantly with me where I am, and see my glory. His will. And that will which is in perfect harmony with that of the Father is that all Christians literally will gaze forever in heaven on Christ, on the mediator, the splendor of his glory, his glorified human nature. So when believers die, they'll be with the Lord and see him 
as he is. And while we enjoy as Christians God's gracious presence with us at all times, and there are moments when we are more conscious of his presence, in times of revival we can experience his felt presence when his presence can be powerfully experienced and felt by individual Christians and by congregations. That even more wonderfully, when the believer dies, it will be to enjoy the immediate presence of the Lord in heaven. Now that is the conviction and the hope which has gripped and enabled many Christians to die in great expectancy and joy. The hope not just of dying, but of being with Christ. Protestant reformers in England in the 16th century, for example, they faced death with courage, with, with, with joy. I refer to Roland Taylor, the rector of Hadley in Suffolk, burnt at the stake in February 1555. And he was asked just before, a few minutes before his death how he felt. He replied, I've never felt better, for now I'm almost at home. I'm even at my father's house, looking forward, anticipating heaven, being with Christ. Do you remember the response of a 73-year-old man in Cornwall, 1868? No prizes for guessing his name. And when his medical doctor was called to examine him because of his chest pains and discomfort, before the doctor arrived, Billy Bray told his close friends, I think I shall go home to the father's house very soon and see my saviour. Then, after examining the patient, the doctor told Billy, you are going to die very soon, Billy. And his response was immediate and joyous. Glory, doctor. Glory. Glory be to God. And he jumped up. I shall soon be in heaven. And doctor, shall I tell them that you'll be joining me soon after? <laughs> the prospect of glory for the Christian is thrilling. Absent from the body, present with the Lord. Or in 1981, to bring it a bit closer to us, the late Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones was dying of cancer in his London home, declining further treatment because he thought it would not help him. Unable to talk, he scribbled on a piece of, of paper for the benefit of his family the words, Do not pray for my healing. Do not keep me back from the glory. And those of us who, who knew him know that he, he wanted more and more towards the end of his life to be with Christ which he would say is far better. Now, heaven is the term normally used by Christians to describe what we call this intermediate state. The intermediate state of glory when 
Each Christian dies and goes to be with the Lord whom they love. And I hasten to add that heaven is a biblical word. It's a biblical term. We shouldn't be afraid of using it. There are several Hebrew and Greek words which all carry the same basic meaning and translated heaven, literally that which is above. Sometimes the the Hebrew words refer to just the the vast expanse of space, as in Genesis 1.1, or to the visible sky above us, in Genesis 1.20. But the primary use of these words in the Bible is to refer to God's dwelling place. Remember the familiar words in what we call the, the Lord's Prayer. Matthew 6, 9 begins with the words, Our Father who is in heaven. While in Psalm 33, verses 13 to 14, we read that from heaven the Lord looks down and sees all mankind From his dwelling place, he watches all who live on earth. Or in Isaiah 66, verse 1, we're told, This is what the Lord says, Heaven is my throne, and the earth is my footstool. Heaven, then, is where God is. He's the God of heaven, and referred to such frequently in the Old Testament scripture. But if you are wide awake tonight, you may be wondering, well, is not God omnipresent? Is he not everywhere? So how can God be thought of as being in heaven and having his dwelling place there? Well, the Bible teaches that God is everywhere. He's omnipresent, present in every point of space with his whole being. God is not confined to any one place. He's present in all places at once. And his omnipresence is part of his government of this world, that he's present everywhere in order to preserve, to sustain, to rule his creation, as well as to reveal himself as a holy and a merciful God in Christ. However, even though God is omnipresent, God has appointed heaven as the special place, the place where Christians will see and enjoy the Lord in the full blaze of his love and glory. God is not more present in heaven than he is in the world or in hell. Yet, God is uniquely present in heaven to show his grace and mercy, his loveliness to his people. Why heaven? Well, because it's there that the Lord displays his love fully and his mercy without limitations and in the most wonderful and breathtaking ways which really are unimaginable for us here. We see only through a glass darkly. Faith then 
gives way to sight as the Christian enters heaven and sees the God of glory. And we shall truly be lost in wonder, love and praise. Just from heaven remember that the Lord Jesus Christ himself came. And on several occasions he emphasized the fact. Before his incarnation, the Lord Jesus, as of right, was in heaven with the Father. It is to heaven that the Saviour returned in triumph, in his ascension, following his resurrection. The disciples in Acts 1.11 were informed by the angels that this same Jesus, who has been taken from you into heaven, will come back in the same way as you've seen him go into heaven. But it is in heaven, and I repeat, that the Lord has gone to prepare a place for his people. John 14, verses 1 to 3. Paul is able to tell the Colossian believers in Colossians 1, verse 5, of the hope stored up for you in heaven. Remember the words of the Apostle Peter in chapter 1 of his first epistle, verse 4, speaks of the inheritance which is kept in heaven for you. And the believers themselves are kept by the power of God. And God ensures that they will reach glory. Not one of them will be lost. Now that prospect is glorious and I don't want to minimise that in anything that I say tonight. We ought to anticipate it with joy. And though we may sorrow over Christian friends and relatives who die, their privilege is fantastic to be with Christ, to be like him, and they fully enjoy him. But glorious as that prospect of heaven is for the Christian when he or she dies, it's part of the big picture provided in the Bible. And it's the big picture, it's the full picture I want to outline this evening as quickly as I can. Less than an hour, I hope, John. There's much more to the hope that we have in Christ regarding the future. One theologian has described the doctrine of the intermediate state, that is heaven and hell, for believers, unbelievers respectively at death, as receiving only a whisper of mention in the New Testament revelation. Now he may be exaggerating, and I think he does. And the New Testament clearly teaches heaven and hell for believers and unbelievers, respectively. However, the theologian has a point that compared with what the New Testament says about heaven, in the intermediate state, which he likens to a whisper, he draws attention to the the shout of the future resurrection of the body, Christ's personal return in glory, the complete subjection of all things and everyone to Christ, the glories of the new heaven and the new earth. 
That is the shout of the New Testament scripture. It completes the picture. Because of this biblical emphasis, writers and theologians have responded, and more recently, I think, more appropriately. Uh, Wayne Grudem, if you've read him, follows our faithful Louis Birkhoff, distinguishing between a general, personal, or individual eschatology, eschatology, the doctrine of the last things, death, final judgment, heaven, hell, the coming of Christ, etc. So a distinction between what is general and what is individual. Carl Henry refers to a two-sided eschatology, and with our Western individualism, we only think of ourselves and our own personal anticipation of glory, which is correct, but it's only part of the picture. Anthony Heikema, in the book, uh, his book, The Bible and the Future, he devotes just about two-thirds of its contents to what he calls cosmic eschatology. What's happening to the world, to, to the earth, the heavens, as we know. What then does the New Testament have to say about this fuller picture, this final divine master plan, which Carl Henry describes it as? We're being challenged to think beyond even the fact of our personal glorification of believers and to include in our thinking the, the biblical, corporate, and ultimate consummation of God's redemptive purposes. I can quote Carl Henry again. He says, God's mighty purpose is sweeping the entire universe towards the final climax of his master plan. History is moving forward, not just to the death of individual believers and their entrance to heaven, but history is moving forward to the coming of Christ and the final consummation of all God's purposes for the church and for the world. It's a cosmic eschatology. It's God's final climax, his master plan. What does the New Testament say about it? Well, I want briefly to sample five New Testament passages which help in understanding our subject of eternity with Christ. You may ask why these five passages? Well, because I submit that they are the, the key passages in the New Testament on our subject. Um, to use a football illustration, being in Newcastle, I'm sure you won't mind. Um, these passages are the five Premier League passages for our subject. They really stand in the New Testament, to change the illustration, in the top ten New Testament references to our eternity with, with Christ and cosmic eschatology. So in discussing eternity with Christ from a biblical perspective, the new heavens and the new earth, you must, you must refer to these five passages. 
And all these passages, these five passages, confirm apostolic teaching, as well as the teaching of our Lord Jesus Christ. The New Testament is consistent in its teaching. And these five passages link up with and are saturated in the Old Testament scriptures. They even take us back even to Genesis chapter 3, as well as to many of the prophecies of the Old Testament, like Isaiah and Ezekiel. Just two quick warnings. First, time only permits me to engage in limited exegesis of the the text. I'm sure you'll understand that. But secondly, I'm not arguing for tonight or against an amillennialist or a premillennialist or a postmillennialist position. Some of you may be disappointed. I'm sorry about that, but I'm not changing my mind. It's the big picture of future glory which is important, not a particular view or interpretation of the New Testament data. Far too often, Christians are quarreling as amillennialists with premillennialists and with postmillennialists. And the various schools within some of these positions... And they lose sight of the big picture, what God is going to do. And there's no sense of anticipation. And so, I want us to, to get the feel of the big picture of future glory. Not a program, not a timetable of a particular viewpoint. We go first to our reading from Romans chapter 8, verses 18 to 25. Romans chapter 8 and verses 18 to 25. Contextually here, the Apostle Paul in verse 18 is giving the first of a number of major encouragements in the section of the letter because he is encouraging, he's comforting, reassuring Christians, and particularly those who are suffering for the sake of Christ and his gospel. And such suffering the apostle sees as a preparation for being glorified in the future with, with Christ. And so the first encouragement he's giving us in verses 18 to 25 is the one that concerns us. That the present sufferings we experience here as Christians, whatever the sufferings may be, and sufferings which result as a result of being Christians, persecution, or part of the general trials and tribulation that we share as believers in this world, that these sufferings pale into insignificance when seen in the light of the glory, to be revealed in us, in the church, in the future. Now that's the encouragement. See your sufferings in the light of coming glory. Keep your eyes on the big picture. And don't wallow in self-pity. Now this particular encouragement is desperately needed today. 
Never before in his history has the Christian church been so opposed and persecuted and savagely persecuted as in our contemporary situation. We must wake up to the fact. An extremely conservative estimate is that an average of 35 Christians each day of the year are killed because they are Christians. They're killed for the sake of the gospel in different parts of the world. Many other Christians are being terrified at this moment. They're being physically attacked. They're being tortured. They're being imprisoned, victimized in all kinds of horrible ways, deprived of employment and of income, being ridiculed. Their homes often are damaged, church buildings destroyed, as is happening in Iraq. Families have been driven from their homes and from their home areas. And there are lots of Christians who are being forced to convert to Islam. It was last Wednesday that an Iraqi Christian in South Wales reported to me that he just had news from Iraq that a a Christian minister in Iraq who refused under force to become a Muslim had his tongue cut off immediately so that he couldn't preach. Hours later, his two hands were cut off. The following day, his head was cut off and placed in a bucket of boiling water. The church in the world is often a suffering church. And in the West, we must wake up to this fact. Persecution may be coming to us sooner than we anticipate. Now, what is the encouragement that the Apostle is giving to the Christians? Verse 18. I consider that the sufferings of this present time, he's not minimizing them. He's not telling them to ignore them. But I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. Let me very quickly underline five important facts related to this encouragement. One, that all Christians in the future are going to be manifested and exhibited by the Lord to the world in their glorified state. God is going to display what he's done in his salvation in us to the world. In other words, we'll be revealed in our glorified state, but with Christ. At the end of verse 17, we're informed that we may also share in his glory. And in verse 18, 
He speaks of the glory that will be revealed in us. So there is an, an indescribable, glorious future awaiting Christians. So in our sufferings, keep an eye on the future, the glory that is coming. Two, in verse 19, creation or nature is personified as waiting and longing for this amazing event to take place. Creation, says the apostle, is eagerly expecting the event. Literally, it means stretching its neck. It's so eager to catch a glimpse of this future event and for it to take place. Creation wants to participate in this future glory. Paul reminds us that the future of creation of this earth and that of Christians and the coming again of the Lord Jesus in glory are inextricably bound up together. It's a, it's a wonderful prospect. Three. The apostle explains in verse 20 why creation is looking forward to the glorification of believers. And for the answer, notice that the Paul takes us back to Genesis 3. When Adam and Eve, our first parents, sinned, and God judged, and he judged mankind. Adam is, was our representative, our federal head. Satan is also judged. But he subjected creation to frustration. God did this. Subjected the creation nature to disharmony, to decay, to death, to futility. And the apostle uses the, the air is tense. So there was a single definite act on the part of God which was not repeated so nature was no longer the same as when it was originally created by God. The curse was pronounced. Disharmony was brought in as a result of sin. So in verse 20, the apostle speaks that the consequence of God's judgment on creation is that it is now in bondage to decay, to corruption, unable to free itself from it. Four, while God subjected creation to disharmony and decay, he did so at the end of verse 20 in hope. This is the big picture. Namely that one day, even creation will be liberated from its bondage and brought into the glorious freedom of the children of God. So in that day of glorification, when our bodies are raised as believers and made like unto the, the body of Christ, the new earth, the, the world itself is, is transformed. There'll be no more earthquakes or hurricanes or tsunamis or volcanic eruptions. Animals will coexist in harmony. Disease and death will be banished from creation. A deliverance and a glorification for creation. Five. In harmony with creation, Christians also, in verse 23, notice what Paul says, inwardly groan as we wait eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. 
the bodies of believers buried that linger in the grave. They're going to be raised at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. They'll be glorified, fashioned like unto the body of Christ. And that's an integral part of the final consummation of our salvation. The church will not miss out on it. The Lord will not forget to do it. And this resurrection will occur when the Lord himself returns personally, visibly, and in glory. Then the final judgment, the punishment of Satan and his hosts, as well as unbelievers in hell. Sin will be eradicated. Creation delivered from its bondage. Believers will live with glorified bodies on a renewed, transformed earth under the renovated heavens. The future of the church and of creation is a glorious one. Passage 2, 1 Corinthians 15, verses 24 to 28. 1 Corinthians 15, verses 24 to 28. I can be more brief at this point. Once again, pastoral help is needed for these Corinthian Christians because they were uncertain about and even some were denying the future resurrection. So in verses 1 to 11, the apostle underlines the historical fact of our Lord's resurrection. He marshals the historical data It's convincing. The resurrection of the Lord Jesus physically from the dead is not a figment of our imagination. It's not a myth. It's not a fairy story. It happened in history. Then the apostle in verses 12 to 19 moves forward to show the centrality of Christ's resurrection to the gospel. You're familiar with the verses, but... The thrust of it is this, that there is no gospel and no salvation without a risen Christ. The one who was delivered for our offenses was raised again for our justification. Then in verses 20 to 28, the apostle emphasizes some of the consequences of the Lord's resurrection, especially Future consequences. At the end of verse 23, we're reminded that our own physical resurrection and glorification are not immediate, but they will occur at his coming when he returns the second time. And then verse 24 begins emphatically. There is considerable emphasis, but there's no verb there. Then the end the telos, which refers in verse 23 to the coming again of the Lord Jesus Christ. So the glorious resurrection of the dead, the end of world history are accompanied by the the final victory of the Lord over evil and the end of all opposition and hostile powers. 
Only righteousness will exist in the new earth, the new heaven. Verses 25 and 6 tell us why the Son must continue his rule as mediator over the universe. He must rule, says the Apostle, till he subdues all enemies under his feet. And that day will come. The final enemy, death, will be swallowed up in victory. And we will rise to die no more. Verse 27 is explanatory. And verse 28 underlines the universal success of Christ in subduing everything and everyone to him, glorifying the church, renewing creation, and having accomplished all God's redemptive purposes for his church and the world, the messianic reign ceases, and now the the triune God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, rules supreme over a renewed universe, a new heaven, new earth. People of God saved. The impenitent shut up with Satan as angels in hell. God is supreme over all. And again I emphasize the church and history itself are moving towards this great climax. Passage 3 is 1 Thessalonians 4. 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 13, into chapter 5, as far as verse 10. My comments will be brief here, but the passage again is pastoral in its aim, its emphasis. Paul is answering the crucial question which troubled many in the church at the time. Will the Christians who have already died, will they miss out in terms of future glory when Christ returns? The Apostle's answer is a resounding no. They won't miss out. No believer will miss out on anything. Now, just three aspects I'll mention quickly. One, all Christians will be glorified when Christ returns. Those who have died... And those who are still alive when he returns. The whole and vast company of the elect will be resurrected, glorified, and live forever with Christ. And two, Paul underlines the fact that the bliss of future glory does not climax in the resurrection of the body as such, though that is wonderful, or in a rapture, But in verse 17, the fact that we will be with the Lord forever. That supremely is the glory of heaven, being with Christ. Leon Morris, in his commentary, makes this comment. When Paul comes to that great fact that we will be with the Lord forever, a fact which includes everything else, and makes everything else unimportant, he stops. There's nothing to add to it. Forever with the Lord. And that'll be the full realisation of God's covenant promises, the central message of which is that God will live with them, they'll be his people 
God himself will be with them and be their God. Three, as in the other passages, the practical challenge for Christians is that they should be alert, watchful, ready for Christ's appearing and living godly, obedient lives. And he brings this out in the opening verses of chapter 5. And I'll bring this out before I close shortly. Passage 4. I'm getting there slowly. 2 Peter 3, <coughs> verses 10 to 13. I hammer the point home again that the passage is pastoral. This time the apostle is writing to help Christians answer the cynics of their day. And these cynics were striking at the very heart of apostolic teaching, scoffing at the doctrine of Christ's return in glory and the end of the world. And their denial of this was accompanied by ungodly living. So there's a very strong contrast that Peter's making between the holiness, the obedience which he's urging upon Christians and the ungodly living of these cynics. Now their cynicism at first seems plausible. Hasn't the world remained the same since the beginning? Why expect the coming of Christ and any change to the, the universe? Well, the Apostle Peter de- corrects them. Simply, he says, well, creation has not remained the same. For there was a universal flood in the days of Noah. And that flood was universal, covered the whole earth in verse 6. And Peter warns in verse 7. But just as the water was used in Noah's day to, to judge, so the same God intends to intervene again in the future, but this time by means of fire to purge and renovate the universe. Now before underlining the sober fact, he explains the reasons why this cataclysmic global event has not yet happened. Why the delay, Peter is, 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 is explaining. Well, essentially, if you look in verse 8, it's because of God's character and God's purpose. For example, God is the eternal I am in verse 8. Time doesn't apply to him, whether it's a day or a thousand years. It, you can't apply time categories to God. He is also faithful and doesn't delay or loiter in doing what he decrees to do. But, says Peter, God is also patient. He's not willing for anyone to perish. But he calls upon all unbelievers to repent while it is still the day of grace and salvation. So the very fact that the end has not yet occurred is an expression of God's patience and mercy. It's an opportunity for unbelievers to be saved, to to repent. However, in verse 10, he emphasizes the fact that the, the day of the Lord will come. There's no question about it. 
but it will come suddenly, unexpectedly, like a thief in the night, to use the language of our Lord. When the Lord comes, the heavens will disappear with a roar. The elements, such as the sun, moon, stars and waters, will melt with fervent heat. What about this earth? Well, says Peter, and the earth and everything in it shall be burned up or judged or purified. There are some textual questions here. And perhaps the verb refers more to a smelting and a refining of metal picture. But here is the big picture. The present created order is not expendable in the divine purpose. Verse 10 is stressing the the permanence of the created earth. Despite the judgment, despite the purging, the, the transformation, the present earth is going to be freed from its bondage. It's going to be renewed and transformed through fire, but not destroyed. And so there is continuity between the old and the new. Do you recall that in Matthew 19, verse 28, the Lord Jesus refers to this when he promises the regeneration or renewal of all things. God doesn't purpose to dispense with the earth, but it will be radically renewed and transformed to make a new heaven, a new earth, in which only righteousness exists. So that in verse 13 is God's promise we can look forward to with eagerness and delight. Passage 5, Revelation 21 and 22. And there is one main question I want to answer from this passage. But notice a couple of introductory points. The first, that the the theme of new creation dominates chapter 21 of Revelation right to its conclusion, verse 5 in chapter 22. New creation is an emphasis here. What follows in chapter 22 from verse 6 to the end are a series of five exhortations to holiness which are then concluded with a benediction. In verse 21. So perseverance and obedience is emphasized in the closing verses of chapter 22. And that obedience evidences saving faith. And it's going to result in God's grace in the enjoyment of glory on a new earth with the Lord himself, the bridegroom. So the context, therefore, is not controversy. It's not speculation concerning a precise program of events at the coming of the Lord, but rather an extremely practical challenge. We've got it all wrong when we debate and argue about particular programs and, and timetables of, of, of the coming of our Lord Jesus. The New Testament brings a strongly, almost exclusive, practical challenge It must affect the way in which we're living here and now. Christians are urged in Revelation 22 to turn away from all compromise, all expressions of ungodly living, 
persevere in holiness, and despite sufferings and despite the cost of obedience, persevere. And their reward is glory when he returns. And this should excite believers to to holiness. Second introductory point is that the apostles' emphasis in chapters 21 and 22 is not on the beauty and the features of the new earth, but rather on the redeemed, on the church, glorified, glorified believers and their enjoyment of Christ. So, if you like, it's a spiritual rather than a physical or material emphasis, focusing on the joys and the privileges of the community of glorified Christians, the church. The Lord intimately present, right at the center uh, of his people. So here are the emphases of these two chapters. So what the verses say about the, the new earth in itself is, is brief. Now come back to chapter 21 and verse 1. Standing behind verse 1 in chapter 21 are the prophecies from Isaiah 65 verse 17, which reads, For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth. That's exactly what John is allowed to see in chapter 21 verse 1. You see that little word in English, for, gives the reason why he sees the, the new heaven, the new earth. The reason is because the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. The first earth was temporary, but now it's radically changed. It's qualitatively different. He uses a a different Greek word for, for new. It's permanent, it's new, it's superior. And how this new earth will come about has been hinted at in 2 Peter 3. Remember that in coming into Revelation 21, the resurrection of the dead, the judgment, the punishment of Satan and believers are complete. So the new heaven and new earth established by the Lord and only righteousness dwells there. Then we're told that there was no longer any sea. And in the Bible, the sea is a picture of separation, of unrest, a symbol of the rebellious nations which persecute Christians. It's from the sea, we're told in Revelation, the beast is pictured as emerging. But in the renewed, the transformed cosmos, there'd only be peace and harmony. An echo, perhaps, of Isaiah 51 verses 10 11, which the Removal of the waters in dividing the Red Sea, in delivering Israel from from Egypt, points to the removal of all sorrow and danger and opposition in their final state of glory. No believers will be persecuted there. There'll be no enemy to trouble. There'll be no need for a Christian influence in a secular world, Colin. It'll be a new earth wherein dwells only righteousness. And so there will be peace and harmony within the animal realm. 
freedom from the threat and danger, complete security and happiness, righteousness and peace. But what will it be like for Christians to live with Christ in the new creation? Well, there's a thrilling link between verses 1 and 2 in chapter 21. Verse 1 sets the context. It refers to the new heaven, the new earth, having been created by God. It's perfect, it's clean, complete absence of conflict and evil. Nature has been purged of its disharmony, decay. There's no sign of the original curse remaining. It's a glorious, breathtaking scene. But who will inhabit it? Well, verse 2 provides part of the answer. John sees the, the holy city, the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God. This is the church of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's holy, entirely free from sin. It's been prepared by God as a bride, beautifully dressed for a husband. The Lamb, the Lord Jesus Christ, is the great bridegroom, the church, is the bride, divinely conformed to the likeness of Christ, to now enjoy the greatest possible intimacy with Christ on the, the new earth. Verse 3 takes us to the heart of that bliss and wonders of eternity with Christ. John hears a great voice from heaven's throne announcing the climactic fulfilment of the central message of God's covenant promises now realised in their fullness. The dwelling of God is with men and he will live with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. No blessing can be greater than this for it is the very heart of the covenant. All the grace and mercy and the blessings which Christians receive from God in this life and throughout history, have come because of God's covenant love and grace. God freely chose to love a vast company of people. And with his son and, and with his church, he established a covenant. He pledged himself in covenant. One theologian has used this illustration that I'm adapting because um, the last occasion I was out in Asia, um, a national painter there in, in the country where I was, um, he was giving uh, one of his own paintings, which was very attractive, to a national pastor there who was interpreting for me. And uh, he'd seen the pastor some three weeks before we arrived at his home for a meal. And uh, the, the painter, a Christian, said to the pastor, well, I've done the painting, but you can't have it until I've framed it. No painting leaves my home until it's framed. And this theologian talks about the gospel in terms of a beautiful painting the glories of God, the triune God, Father, Son, Spirit, his matchless majesty and beauty, his holiness, his awesomeness, yet his love and his mercy 
in Christ. The love that he has for his church. The, the whole plan of redemption. So amazing. So brilliantly wise and perfect. Justification through, through Christ on the ground of his sacrifice. The application of redemption by the Spirit. And all the promises and all the future which God has planned for his people redeemed in Christ. That's the painting. But the frame is the covenant of God. The painting doesn't come without the frame. And as Christians we must come back to to, to thinking more in terms of the covenant. God has loved us with a covenant love. And he's pledged himself to his people. And here is the very centre of covenant promises which God makes. That he will dwell with men and he will live with them. They will be his people. And I have this privilege here to know to be part of his people. God is with me in his gracious presence. But this is going to be fulfilled much, much, much more in a glorified state. And no blessing can be greater than this. It's the very heart of the covenant. We'll enjoy the immediate presence of God. We'll indulge in uninterrupted, satisfying, rich fellowship with our covenant God. Yesterday I came across a letter written to me way back in um, 1997, I think, by one of my former members in North Wales. She was about 83, crippled with arthritis. And um, she wrote to me, and uh, she said that she'd had a nasty fall, she'd gone into hospital. But she said, it's not the pain that's my problem. I can't find the Lord. She'd been converted in her early 70s. The Lord has been so real to me over the past months. As I read the word, as I pray, as I lie in my bed, the Lord's presence has been so real. We've had sweet communion. But I can't find him. I can't find him. Pray for me. Advise me. What do I do? I had a letter a few days later saying the Lord had come back to her. uh, She was knowing more of the intimacy of his presence. But in heaven, we'll have uninterrupted intimacy with the Lord. And in the glorified state, even more magnificent, with the whole church gathered, our bodies raised, and a new earth wherein dwells only righteousness. And the essence of it is that God is with us and we enjoy him. And so in verse 4, tears, death, mourning and pain will be removed forever. Verse 5, I'm making everything new, says the Apostle John, as he hears the words from the, the throne of heaven. It's the sovereign, omnipotent Lord who renews the entire creation, establishing perfect conditions for the church. And to emphasize the certainty of this prospect being accomplished, the Lord speaks to John 
It is done. I'm the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end in verse 6. And all that God promises, he achieves. All that he begins, he completes. And although this promise of glory relates to the future, it's nevertheless certain it's going to be accomplished. And we can look forward, anticipate it with joy. So the remaining part of chapter 21 and the early part of chapter 22 mostly describe this glorious state of the church following the Lord's return. The future hope, the new Jerusalem, it's described by way of analogy and rich, often Old Testament, symbolism and phraseology. It's, it, it's, a, it's, it's a moving scene. A temple will not be necessary, a sermon, preachers, prayer meetings, conferences. Not even a Bible will be necessary there because the Lord's presence will fill the entire city. The glory of God gives it light and the Lamb is the lamp of it. So life, resurrection, the abolition of death, disease, tears, death, pain, the creation of a new earth where only righteousness exists, happiness, light, the Lord's immediate presence. These are the integral features of this future glory. With glorified bodies, new heaven and new earth, a glorified, completed church, absolute, undisputed victory over all the enemies. The triune God rules supreme. And the church enjoys the Lord in glory. In closing, how do we apply all this to ourselves? Have I got five minutes, John? What are the implications and challenge of this glorious hope for our lives and stewardship here? I mentioned four areas of application. There are many more, but I confine myself to, to four. First, the then and the, the now. There's a tension in the scripture between the then, the future glory, and the now, where we are as believers here and now. And that tension is a biblical one. It's a necessary one. The promise Christ has come. The New Testament message is essentially one of fulfillment. Salvation has been purchased once and for all by Christ at Calvary. And that's the eschatological pivotal point. It's already occurred. In Christ, the kingdom of God has come powerfully. He came, he performed miracles, he cast out demons... He declared forgiveness. He died for his church. He rose from the dead. He ascended back to heaven. Uh, he continues as, as Lord, ruling over the universe and over the church. He rules now and must continue to rule until he has put all enemies under his feet. That's the now, but the full consummation of the kingdom is awaited the final kingdom will be established suddenly, gloriously. It's going to be public, it's going to be universal, perfect. The kingdom of God here and now is established slowly by the work of the Spirit and of the church. But imperfection characterizes it. 
But what we must grasp is that as the end or the goal of the universe, Christ is presiding over history, moving the world and the church forward to the end of the age. He is omega in person, the very final word. And the now is going to give way to to the then. So we must be prepared as believers in this church to live with this tension. In other words, the future glory is not about date fixing. It's not just debating about details of the coming glory. It's not sitting back and saying, well, there's nothing we can do in this present world. But Christ's lordship of the church and of the world, the building of his church, the care of creation, functioning of believers as light and salt in society. These are some of the genuine evidences that we we have this hope. And this eschatology can excite, it can motivate, constrain, encourage Christians to participate fully in the present, here and now. And yet still looking forward with joy to the then, the, the coming of Christ and the church's glorification. The tension of then and now. Two, the application of consistent, holy living. I hope you've, you've sensed that from the, the key New Testament texts that New Testament eschatology is firmly and almost entirely located in a practical context. And the purpose of the teaching is not to satisfy any Christian's curiosity. And certainly not to detach Christians from their present personal involvement, family commitments, social church responsibilities. That would be wholly unbiblical and foolish. It's what some Christians do, but it's wrong. Let me remind you, in the Lord's teaching in the Gospels, he repeatedly exhorts and warns his people to be watchful, alert, to be ready, to be faithful, because he may come suddenly, unexpectedly. So, future glory has huge implications for the way in which we live our lives here and now as Christians. In Romans 8.18, Paul is directing Christians to view their sufferings in the light of future glory. That's our perspective. 2 Peter 3, the apostle spells out in no uncertain terms that the Lord's return, the hope of a new heaven, new earth, should motivate us to holy living. Since everything will be destroyed in this way, writes the apostle, what kind of people ought you to be? You ought to live holy, godly lives as you look forward to the day of God and speed its coming. Verse 14, so then, since you are looking forward to this, make every effort to be found spotless, blameless, and at peace with him. So the challenge of future glory for Christians is that we should be holy. 2 Peter 3 puts it even more strongly than some modern translations suggest. What manner of persons you ought to be in holy conduct and godliness. And Peter's using both terms, holiness and godliness, as plurals. Emphasizing the fact that there must be no area of our lives 
where we are not honouring and obeying and pleasing and serving the Lord. If you're familiar with the Westminster Confession of Faith, it's a good book to buy for Christmas if you haven't got it. It ends on the note of heaven, hell and final judgment. You may think that's a very dismal note to end on. But concerning the, the final judgment and the return of Christ in glory, it's what the confession says, that we should always be watchful because we know not what hour the Lord will come. May we ever be prepared to say, Come, Lord Jesus, come quickly, Amen. The very last words of the confession. And A.A. A. Hodge then is commenting on those words of the confession. And I I, I love his words here. He writes, God has left us in, notice, absolute uncertainty with respect to the time at which this great event shall come. Isn't that good? Absolute uncertainty. In order, why? Well, to prevent carnal security and to keep Christians ever on the alert Constantly prepared. And then he comments more on it. About this absolute uncertainty. What effect should it have? Well, he says, we should regard the Lord's return as always immediately impending. He may come today or tomorrow or next century. We, we don't know, but we should be expecting him. Again, We should look forward to it with solemn awe and with joyful confidence. And then he adds, we should be incited to the performance of our duty, the attainment of holiness. It's our duty to love, watch, wait for, hasten to the coming of our Lord. Three, cooperating with God. I borrow the phrase from Martin Luther's uh, social ethic because the word... Cooperate for Luther is a technical term. And rather than asking what we do to restrain sin or promote justice in the world, Luther says we should begin with God, not with man, not even with the church. And so he stresses what God is continually doing in the world in confronting the devil, in restraining wickedness, and in overruling and thwarting their evil deeds. And the responsibility of Christians, says Luther, is that of cooperating with God. We're not to look around for something new and novel or eye-catching, but to cooperate. We do so in the context of divine providence, Luther reminds us. The Lord rules over the world, provides for it, his will can't be resisted, changed or hindered. So I want to emphasize, in his providence, Luther says that God has established three orders or three offices through which he governs the world. God governs, God rules. But he he does so through, first, the home or the family unit. That's important, says Luther. He does so through the state, by which he means the magistrates and the government, the king or a president. 
he makes clear that, that Satan sometimes can come in and transform these earthly orders. Yet there are times in history when God transforms them. And the need is for Christians to cooperate with God in his government of the, the world. Foundational one, he says, is, is the family. It's marriage. The marriage of a man and a woman. We have to say that today, don't we? Parenthood within marriage and the family unit. Marriage supports, transforms the other orders. Family life, says Luther, is a, a school of character. Children are prepared for life and for participation in society. This is a, a creation ordinance. And we're witnessing today the, the breakup of marriages and of family life, even amongst Christians. And I encourage and I applaud what Christian Institute is doing in emphasizing the importance of marriage. It is a creation ordinance. And sexual activity biblically is confined to, to lifetime monogamous marriage. And so the state, the magistrates, the glorious ordinance of God, a splendid gift which God has given to us. You thought of the state and magistrates like that? A splendid gift. I think of the government in the House of Commons saying, oh, Luther says, yeah, it's a splendid gift. Romans 13, he tells us, we're expected to obey the authorities unless it conflicts with the revealed will of God. While we must cooperate with the magistrates and civil government, yet in common grace, unbelievers may often be better politicians and lawyers or judges or medical doctors than Christians. And we're called upon to, to guard these offices, marriage, the family, the state, the magistrates. We do so by prayer, by vigilance, obedience, active involvement, influencing. And he offers several arguments, but he tells us a true Christian lives not for himself, but for his neighbor. He doesn't just live for his own family, but lives for his neighbor and loves his neighbor. The sword is a very great benefit and necessary to the whole world to preserve peace, to punish sin, present evil. So the Christian must cooperate, he must serve, he must help, do all he can to assist the government. And here's a challenge to us in the here and now. Luther wrote these famous words, if there's a lack of a hangman or a soldier... If the government needs judges or rulers and others and you are qualified, Luther says you should offer your services, seek the job, so that necessary government may by no means be despised and become inefficient. And pray for those in authority, quoting 1 Timothy 2. In the here and now, we're to respect God's government, his rectoral justice. I close on this note, that Christ himself, the first and the last, is the vital link between the present earth and the new earth, the new heaven. It's what I've called a Christological 
continuity. It's Jesus Christ who created all things. By him all things consist. If he withdrew his support and preserving influences, the cosmos would integrate. Colossians 1, 15, 17. So he is the creator, the preserver, the ruler. He is the one who redeems sinners. He is the creator, redeemer. And Christ's rule as mediator includes not just his resurrection, not only his ascension to heaven, not only his session at the right hand of the Father, but also his personal return in glory to complete God's redemptive purposes. And the lordship of Christ as mediator embraces the, the entire universe. He is Lord over all. In order at the end of Ephesians 1 to build and to bless his church. So the one who creates and preserves, redeems the elect and builds his church will with the Father and the Spirit make a new earth, a new heaven. But one link I want to emphasise as I sit down, and that is that the Lord Jesus who will return, I know you heard this emphasis last week, he will come as judge. And people are responsible to him. Made in the image of God and accountable to God, each human person will face the Lord as judge one day. And in his distributive justice, rewards and punishments will be administered to humans, to, to, to unbelievers and to, to angels. Hell is the climax of this principle of justice which God is administering already in the here and now. And so the Lord has appointed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness by Jesus Christ. Believers and unbelievers will be separated. And uh, the church will be glorified. And Jonathan Edwards comments at this point, And he says, It's for the abundant comfort of the saints that Christ is appointed to be their judge. The same person who spilled his blood for them. What joy will it be to lift up their eyes and behold the person whom they've trusted for salvation, whose voice they've often heard invited them to himself for protection, safety, coming to judge them, because he will welcome them to glory. May God stir us by his spirit to obey his word and look forward eagerly to his coming to future glorification and to be much more holy and involved in doing his will in our earthly lives. Amen. Right, Durham used the expression life after life after death. Um, to clarify what resurrection is. I was wondering whether you think that term, that expression's helpful or unhelpful. I can't recall at this moment the precise context which he says that. I think what he is trying to refer to is this eschatological hope um, 
And if I remember, he's not denying the intermediate state, but rather the, the qualitative um, fullness which comes uh, at the end, um, which he understands as the victory of Christ, which, which I, I, I agree. Um, I would want to distance myself from N.T. Wright in a number of ways. And uh, yeah, I think I'd be nervous about using that distinction, but I, I think I know what he's trying to say. But I think what we have to grasp, especially with our Western individualism, the, the certainty of, of a hope when we die as believers, but that's part of God's plan. Um, a glorious part, but there's much more to come. And I think Wright is trying to capture that, but um, he's also playing fast and loose with, with, with some New Testament passages, I think. And, you know, he wouldn't accept our Lord's teaching in Matthew 24, 25. I think he would take that more in destruction of uh, Jerusalem AD 70. So I, I'd, I'd be nervous about picking that up. Would you like? <clears throat> would you like to make any special comment on uh, one Corinthians fifteen twenty eight? Uh, when he, that's God, has done this, then the Son Himself will be made subject to Him who put everything under Him, so that God may be all in all. Uh, I just wondered about the relationship between the Father and the Son after the resurrection. What if I said no? <laughs> yeah, I, I'm glad to respond. Um, I think here you, you, you have to think in terms of the mediatorial lordship of Christ, which is the key. This is where non-Trinitarians go wrong. And uh, chronologically, the order there in verses 26, 27, 28 is not strictly correct. In other words, the apostle is, is jumping ahead and then going back again. Um, but I think basically the bottom line is that once the glorification of the church takes place. Um, remember that the, the triune God has exercised rule through the mediator. All authority was given to him and he was given the reward of fulfilling God's redemptive purposes. Um, and when those purposes are, are complete, his, his, that aspect of his lordship um, ceases and he then... Um, hands back the kingdom glorified to the Father. Um, and it is the triune God, Father, Son and Spirit, um, who are, we're not given much detail there, uh, who are seen as, as governing. But, um, and while the Father and the Spirit are ruling through Christ as Lord, uh, there's a, just a slightly different emphasis there, that, that, that to emphasise the complete victory and supremacy uh, of God and of, of, of all that Christ has achieved. Um. Thank you. Well, one last question. I'm sure you're willing to stay around for a few minutes afterwards, yeah. aren't you? If people want to come and talk to you individually and ask questions. Uh, it was just, um, I've heard this thing about is the thief the only one in heaven? If we only rise when the second coming happens, is the thief the only one in heaven at the moment? Is the, the thief? It's just an interesting. The only one in heaven. No. 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 That's no. good. No. <laughs> <laughs> 
to make a mockery of what Paul yeah. says in Philippians 1 and 2 Corinthians 5, 8 uh, in other scriptures. Uh, Stephen, it seems, in Acts 7, is given that vision of, of the glorified Christ and sees the heaven opened and um, he's clearly excited by it. And, yeah. It'd be quite wrong of me to terminate this meeting without expressing our appreciation to Errol for his very comprehensive an exciting talk, pointing us to this tremendous hope which we have. And for the Christian, the best is yet to be. Thank you for reminding us of that, everyone. We're grateful to you for coming.